Welcome to season three of the Precision Medicine Podcast, sponsored by Trapello. This is the podcast where experts come to discuss the problems oncologists, reference labs, and payers face as precision medicine grows and consider solutions for advancing the quality of patient-centered cancer care. Be sure to subscribe at precisionmedicinepodcast.com to get the latest episodes delivered straight to your inbox. Welcome to another episode of the Precision Medicine Podcast. I'm Jerome Madison, and today we have Janine Morales, Senior Director of Clinical Knowledge Systems for Trapello Health. Janine, thank you for being a guest on the podcast. Hi, Jerome. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I selfishly learn a lot from you, Janine, so it is it's really a high point for me to actually get you on the podcast. We kid you all the time that we're going to chase you around with a recorder and just, just listen to the things that you say because you give so many nuggets. But but for our audience, will you tell us a little bit about your professional background and your journey to Trapello Health? Sure, I'd be happy to. So I've been at Trapello Health for going on nine years now. The beginning of my career, I started as a basic scientist. So I have my PhD in pharmacology. And most of my the, the work or the research I did was using the tools of biochemistry and cell biology to understand cellular signaling processes, those things that, those internal controls that, that manage behavior of a cell, its growth or migration. And of course, a lot of these discoveries in this area can attribute many new cancer treatments to the great strides made in, in cellular signaling. So I actually take no credit for that personally, because to be honest, I probably wasn't a great bench scientist. Um, <laughs> I found it wholly unsatisfying to, to kind of focus on one very specific scientific question. And even, you know, as a, as a student, I, I would prefer to go to seminars and hear about hear about the breadth of things that were going on. And as a postdoc, I jumped over to immunology um, and then was considering another jump and, and realized this isn't perhaps a path or I'm not really building the foundation for a career as a research scientist. And, it, and frankly, I had to admit to myself that I wasn't really interested in that. You know, on the other hand, I, I love biology and science, and, and that's where my, where my heart is, and I'm completely fascinated by how basic research at the molecular level was, at the time, was beginning to make its way into patient care, of course, in this burgeoning field of translational medicine. And additionally, I think I've always had this sense that scientific developments were kind of outpacing our ability to relay these findings to those around us, uh, be it clinicians or patients. And so I, I was seeing a niche for myself there, which is to look at the bigger picture and help not just for my own edification, but to bring it to, to others in the field. So if we look at translational medicine, you know, how do we translate these new approaches, um, these new discoveries to clinical care and these new interventions that are, are driven to, by biology um, to those that are using it, so they feel comfortable with these new options, and uh, that's where that's where I've chosen to focus my career. I initially was was after after my training, I went in and worked for a company called Bio.com, and and worked a lot in the biotechnology space, and uh, bringing new developments to. Uh, also through um, webinars at the time, early early podcasts that were happening in the 90s. And then for the last about 15 years, my focus has been on, on cancer. 
There are many who have definitions of precision medicine. Janine, from your perspective, how would you define it? What is precision medicine? Yeah, I hope I can provide a perspective that that brings something something new to it. But I think if we take as a starting point that that human diseases are disorders in biology and that the biology of each individual is unique, I think that precision medicine is found is founded on that. And it's it's really not only a way of treating patients, it's it's a process, right? It's we're using that knowledge of the biology to both develop new drugs, and then once those drugs are available, we use the the unique characteristics of the patient to choose the best drugs to use. And the goal or the the assumption is that tailoring treatments to a patient's unique characteristics can improve outcomes. So, you know, in cancer, at least, you know, with some boil it down, like to boil down precision medicine, or it often has been boiled down to using genomic or, or molecular information of a patient to choose the optimal treatment. So I, I guess that's where I would start as a definition of precision medicine. Is this applicable to other diseases? Certainly, I think that I, I don't see any reason that this concept couldn't be applied to other disease states. I mean, I think certainly everyone would agree that, you know, not just cancer, but that all diseases are are driven by the biology. And if you look at things like autoimmune diseases, these are, you know, biologically really complex and highly heterogeneous diseases. And right now there's a lot going on to figure out how do we better diagnose those subtypes of autoimmune diseases? How do we use molecular information to get a sense of the prognosis of the patient? And, and ultimately, I think, you know, moving towards, as, as we are in, in cancer care, using it to predict treatment response. Um, you know, maybe in other cases like infectious diseases, if we take just the COVID pandemic, for example, what's driving the tremendous variability in um in responses to infection. Um, and, I, you know, I think we're going to learn a lot about the biology behind that. Some of it's going to be related to the overall health of the patients, and some might be related to underlying um, genetics of the individual. And in the future, perhaps we'll know more about how better to either prevent those infections or treat them Again, I guess I don't want to. I, I don't want to oversimplify precision medicine. Or I think there's a lot in the field that is is somewhat aspirational. And I think we want to be very like really precise about the way we talk about precision medicine's value. I think it all makes it, it all makes great sense. And in some cases, we've seen real success in in applying these precise measurements to tailor treatments. Um, but I think you know. All of these, all of these applications still require an evidence-based assessment um, on, you know, how how well do, does genomic information really lead to or predict the likelihood of response or benefit to to an intervention. Um, and I think some, to some degree, that's getting more complicated in the space um, of precision medicine. Both, I mean, I think some of the things like immune diseases, uh, infectious diseases, those are early. But in, in cancer, even, that has, you know, we've had, what, 15, 20 years behind us now. Uh, it's, it's getting uh, complicated, I think, to, to apply precision medicine precisely. Yeah. Well, you mention all the time, and this is something that um, that Clint Taylor talks about, the complexity. I mean, there's complexity in how we we 
discover what to test or just there's complexities as the, the information starts to grow. But then there's complexities about individual targets and, and genetics. Can you talk about some, some specific examples of, let's say, targets or, or, or the complexities that we have to face? Because you've mentioned in the past that we tend to think of like, you know, gene matches, binary, uh, but there's that level of certainty is not always there. Can you kind of talk about some examples? Yeah, I, I'd be happy to. I think, um, well, one, I, I, I don't want to I don't want to diminish the value of precision medicine or molecular testing. I think it's it's here to stay. I think um, it's a, a really important part of choosing the right treatment for patients. And in some cancer types, it begins with a molecular test. I think that that will will only broaden the application of molecular testing in cancer. Um, and in some for some of those molecular aberrations, the the relationship with to therapy is pretty clear, um, and things like ALK rearrangements and and fusions. Um, there's there there's so much there's such strong biology, really really robust response rates across, um, well at least in NTRAC across multiple tumor types, and frankly in ALK, not only in lung cancer but other tumor types. Um, I'm not sure that that's all the that's necessarily the future of precision medicine that we're just going to see you know these uh, a string of single gene targets with these levels these types of response rates um, and I think that there have been some approvals recently that that give access to broad sets of patients um, which I think is great but the the precision the precise utilization of those therapies is maybe less clear-cut. So I saw an interesting study recently. It was published in the Annals of Oncology, I believe. And, and uh, you know, there are caveats and, and confounding issues, issues to the study, but I think it just highlighted a trend that I'm not surprised about. And one is, or that is that, so the study looked at the percentage of U.S. cancer patients that were eligible for and respond to a genome-targeted therapy. And they looked over a period of time. I think it was like 2005 or 2006 to, to 2020. And what the trend they saw is that most of the increase in eligibility, meaning, you know, more patients have access to a genome-targeted therapy, most of that increase in eligibility was seen after 2018, so rather recently. Hmm. While most of the increase in response rates were seen prior to 2018. Wow. Um, and I, I think that that's not entirely surprising, and I don't want to, you know, overstate that. I think it's a... Um, it's one study that is is uh, is complicated to to over, you don't want to overgeneralize, but I, I think that um, in some ways we're not surprised. I'm not surprised by that given some of the recent approvals. So I think some recent approvals I think require a deeper understanding of the details of those studies in order to utilize the drugs in a way that really optimizes patient care. I think unlike Again, you have an elk rearrangement. You're a lung cancer patient. Um, you 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 kind of understand the relationship to therapies. There, I think some of these new approvals are are less clear. Are there particular examples that uh, stand out in your mind? Yeah, I think a couple of there are a couple recent examples that that maybe you know speak to this this greater access. Um, that more patients are now eligible for a, a, a genome-driven therapy. 
one that comes to mind is tumor mutational burden. Um, we know that uh, so a tumor mutational burden is the is looking at you're looking at you're assessing the number of mutations or the amount of mutations in the DNA of in, in the cancer's DNA, so the somatic mutations. And there's lots of data that has shown that there's a relationship between you know a higher mutational burden and response to checkpoint inhibitors. Um, and there, uh, one of one checkpoint inhibitor was recently approved for patients who have a mutational burden of ten, um, higher than ten mutations per megabase. And I think that so great. All patients with solid tumors have the potential to benefit from immunotherapy. There's some path to that. I think the complexity comes when you look at the details of the study and some uh, the study that led to the approval, as well as other studies. Um, one is there were a limited number of solid tumors included in that, in that study. So there were no colorectal cancer patients, for instance, um, I believe no breast cancer patients. Uh, so and then there have been some other studies that have said, huh, it looks like, you know, is the cutoff of 10 really the right cutoff? I mean, that isn't something that's defined in basic biology. That is, that is a, you know, a human defined, that that was defined, and it's not a magical number that only patients above it respond and those below don't. And I think there's a lot of question around what's the right cutoff um, for, for each disease type. Um, and that's, you know, that's limited by the number of patients that have been studied with, with the different disease types. Um, so I think it's important that we keep track of, not just not just look at the approval and the information that was provided in the data provided to support that approval, but new information as it comes out. What, who else, you know, real world, real world evidence, what are we seeing in, you know, ovarian cancer, in, in breast cancer, and, and to, to make sure that we're providing the best information that, that matches the patient. Um, I guess just one other example that speaks to complexity of TMB. What about treatment-induced tumor mutational burden? In something like, in a disease like glioblastoma, you can see uh, that post-treatment um, with agents that induce mutations, you know, you now have tumor mutational burden that was treatment-induced. And right now it looks like that doesn't really predict response to immunotherapies. So it's, it's about context and it's about um, putting the genomic information in the right context for each patient. I think, so there was also an approval, so PARP inhibitors, uh, I think most of your audience will, will know about that group of agents. And it looks like in several disease types that they work best in individuals uh, whose cancer cells have a defect in their ability to repair DNA. And, and that is consistent to some degree in a couple of different diseases. The, the the issue is that DNA repair is really complicated and there are lots of genes involved. And how do we measure defects in DNA repair and which of those defects are really predictive? So in prostate cancer, a PARP inhibitor was approved for patients um, based on a trial that included patients that had a mutation in one of 15 different genes, in different DNA repair genes. I think the complexity of that study is that the 
most of the patients in that study had either a BRCA or ATM mutation. I should say those were the biggest populations. And then there's a whole set of other genes where you've got, you know, in some cases, one or two patients that have a mutation in one of those genes. Now, if you pooled them all, they there was a statistically significant benefit in that particular study. But when we think about an individual patient that comes in with something like a, a, a CHECK2 mutation or a CDK12 mutation, these are other DNA repair genes, less common, less clear that those genes are predicting benefit. You know, I, I, we always like to think if a patient isn't a population, they have the one gene and how much evidence is there for that one gene. So um, I think that uh, you know, just another illustration that another way to illustrate that it's important to, I think, look deeply at the details of of studies and figure out what data applies to the the patient that a physician might have in front of them. You know, this is really interesting. So, what I'm hearing, you're speaking to something that I've heard you mention before that you called the paradox of precision medicine. And I don't know, is that, was that a term that you use? Is this a well-known term? Can you tell us more about that? Sure. No, it's definitely not my term. And I, it's, it's been used by a variety of individuals. I think there was a, a great uh, commentary uh, that was in the New England Journal of Medicine several years back. And it, it's, I, I pull it up all the time. I just, I've, it, it's simple, and yet I think really speaks to to precision medicine and what we need to keep in mind at all times. So I, I think the idea there is just that as we stre- as precision medicine and our ability to define patients or put them into smaller and smaller subsets, um, the, that our ability to then precisely estimate the effects of a of a given treatment just goes down, right? So we're precisely defining a population, but those populations are getting smaller and smaller. And now, you know, the ability to power uh, a study that gives you real confidence in an outcome is, they're just, right, it's just, it's greatly decreased. Uh, So in some cases, these precise populations, you're, you're basing outcomes on lower low-level evidence. It could be cohort studies or even case studies. Um, so I think that that's just, I, I like to keep that in mind, not as a, uh, when we, so when we curate information or when we're positioning information for a patient, um, I think it's really about making it transparent. Um, how much is available, how much information is available that applies to you I think it's just really interesting and obvious, but always worth keeping in mind that precisely defining patients into small subgroups means you don't have the numbers to power large studies and predict efficacy in really convincing ways. And it seems as the the field of precision medicine grows and the data continues to expand, um, it seems like these cases will become more profound, like smaller groups. And so I see that it's important for clinicians and and payers to have access to this data when it really matters. And that's when they're making a treatment decision or a coverage decision. But, you know, how do you procure all this data in a way that can that these stakeholders can benefit from it? And, and how can you possibly keep up with all the nuances and subtleties 
that you mentioned. Yeah, well, I, I think for practicing clinicians uh, that are treating many disease types, I think it presents an enormous challenge. Um, there, there is just again, to go back to the the elk and Entrec examples, those are fairly easy for one to, to keep in mind and to remember without the support of technology. Um, I think that uh, that's going to be increasingly difficult, again, as we have more and more drugs and as more and more molecular subtypes of patients are included in those studies. So I think it's complicated for everyone. I think that structuring the available data in a way that it can be delivered and that subset of, of information can be delivered at the point of care quickly. So I guess really it's about it's about information and as much as process. I think the process of precision medicine, you know, you can have all that information out there and someone can know it, but if you can't present it to the clinician at the right time, it, it isn't very valuable. So I think that that means that it's incumbent on anyone generating the data to structure it and disseminate it in a way that it can be queried and applied and delivered to to a, a patient or a, a, a patient setting very, very quickly. Um, and th that's not trivial, but I think it's it's important to make sure we realize the potential of precision medicine. Yeah. So here's an example, and it doesn't, I guess, neatly fit under the, the topic of precision medicine, but Hannah Mamushka, CEO of Alvatan, a friend of the podcast, um, she had a post on LinkedIn. For those of you who are on LinkedIn, follow Hannah. She, she has some amazing posts and constantly puts out data there. But Janine, she talked about a recent FDA Oncology Drug Advisory Committee, they made a decision that continues to allow uh, patient access to a tezolizumab for triple negative breast cancer patients, even though the most recent trial data failed to improve progression-free survival over paclitaxel plus placebo, and the overall survival was statistically inferior. Um, so I, I know it doesn't like neatly fit under like the, the umbrella of precision medicine. There, there may not be a biomarker, but I think her, her main takeaway is for situations like this, number one, uh, payers and providers need to know this data and possibly more studies are warranted to, to find uh, a genomic or a genetic signature that um, can identify the cohort of patients who can benefit most. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, th I think you're. I think you're right, Jerome. I think that um, that so so. I guess it's the one could argue. Okay, the the study didn't meet its. I, I actually I want to be careful not to speak to the details of the study, but I, I assume an inferior per overall survival was not the endpoint they had in mind. So let's say, for the sake of argument, it didn't meet its endpoint. Um, you know, from my perspective, I think we try to be careful not to say, oh, that's a good or a bad decision from an access point of view. I think let's just make sure we take the data that was provided and make sure we're making a good decision for the patient. Um, I don't think access to therapies is bad, but um, knowing what, uh, what that approval was based on is important. Um, so I try, you know, I, I always try to step back from the whether something's good or bad. Could we learn more about 
the markers that really predict, that are better at predicting immunotherapy response? Absolutely. And let's hope that the approval doesn't, um, doesn't stall that effort, right? That, um, you know, just like in the, the prostate cancer case, you know, you now have approval for these rare gene mutations. Let's hope that doesn't um, prevent the pursuit of more robust data in those patient populations. So I guess I'm kind of talking around it, Jerome, but I think the idea is, you know, if you have access, let's just make sure it's clear what, um, how to, how to use that drug for a patient. What's the benefit? How does that compare to another agent? Triple negative breast cancer is a very difficult disease to treat. Um, it'd be hard to argue against providing access to to something like an immunotherapy. When do you use it? Would you use it before you used um, um, paclitaxel or after? Or um, is is something that's for the for the patient and the physician to decide? Um, does that does that answer your question? It does, and I, I really wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Probably more than anything else, I'm sure that we're not trying to come to a solution on it. But um, the key, and I think you addressed very squarely, is really giving access to the information, the data that exists. So, and, and that's what you and your team has been able to um, accomplish with creating a knowledge system that powers Trapello, which is our uh, title sponsor of the podcast. Um, how can cancer care providers and payers benefit from a rich knowledge system? Well, I think, um, you know, to reiterate some of the things we've, we've talked about already, I think um, as we have, as more and more data comes out that, and the patient populations are stratified into smaller and smaller subsets, um, I think we need a system in place to, to filter that information and, uh, and deliver to the physician what they need to see at that moment. Um, I think that means that all the information out there needs to be structured in a way that it can be queried and presented based on a patient's characteristics. So when we think about curation, when we think about curation of the data, um, we, we try to capture as much clinically rich detail as possible um, so that we can then aggregate like patients. So we're not just trying to we're, we're not just trying to say for this disease type and this marker or this marker collection do they respond or is it FDA approved? We look at whether you know how many patients had that particular mutation, um, what stage was their disease, what previous treatment did they have, uh, what were the endpoints, what were the outcomes, and so we structure all that in a way that allows us to pull it up and organize it in using those uh, variables as, as drivers. Um, so I think that's, that's an important thing to consider. But then how do you get that to, to, the, pay, to the physicians is, is an important issue that is a complex issue of communication between knowledge systems, communications with communication between payers and knowledge systems and, and provider groups. Um, you know, I think another thing to think about is that um, I think precision medicine, in some cases, you know, patients aren't even being 
tested when they could be or should be. And I, I think uh, the process should start at the beginning where we're helping physicians to identify those patients that are most appropriate for biomarker testing. Um, and that's something that at Trapello we've thought about, which is how do we ensure that you get the right testing done in the first place? If you don't get the right testing done, how do you make the right decision? And that's true of immunotherapies, targeted therapies, and you know all classes of therapies out there. I think it's better, at least for some cancer types, to, to start that start there. And there are ways, and certainly there's room for improvement in testing. Yeah. Trapello has been able to create point of care tools to access that knowledge system, which I think is, is very innovative. Um, and that helps for providers and payers. But pharmaceutical companies are also stakeholders in this too. Is there a way for drug manufacturers to benefit from such a knowledge system? Yeah. Well, I guess you know, I, I'll, I'll tie it back to the patient. Um, I think I, I hope they benefit in any way that what they're delivering provides benefit to the patient. So I think if there are, if they offer a drug that that benefits a patient population, I think it's in. We should ensure that those all those all the patients that qualify are are given access to that. So I think um, driving biomarker adoption. Is, is an important component of that. And I think there are statistics out there that say, you know, when a new mark, biomarker, new drug comes out, it can take uh, years to get to 80, 90% adoption of that marker. Seems a little, um, that, that seems suboptimal. And so I think getting, getting that out there quickly, getting quick market uptake, I think benefits the patient first and foremost, and the the byproduct of that is, of course, a pharmaceutical company can benefit. And I think when you think about some of these smaller populations, it's important to start cataloging real world real world evidence and knowledge systems that are designed to capture that um, and add to the growing body of information for a particular patient subtype. I think potentially that's of, of benefit to companies as well. That is Janine Morales, Chief Scientific Officer at Trapello Health. Janine, I feel like I can, I can talk to you about this the data all day. You do talk about the data all day, but I learned that if you want to get away from this and totally geek out on something else, to give you a snorkel and a barrier reef and you'll disappear. <laughs> Well, I'm not sure how you found that out, Jerome, but <laughs> I think that is my tendency, right? Head down, and uh, I have to remind myself to look up every once in a while, <laughs> whether it's fish or data. <laughs> Whatever dark cave you can find, right, Janine? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Janine, thank you so much for, for, for really enlightening us and kind of helping us get, get our minds around how the data is growing and how we can still organize and it to apply it to all the stakeholders. Thank you for being a guest on the Precision Medicine Podcast. Sure. Thank you, Jerome. I, I hope I contributed something to the conversation uh, and it's been fun to be here. Thank you. You've been listening to the Precision Medicine Podcast, sponsored by Trapello. Trapello is the first clinical decision support tool to align the interests of oncologists, labs, and payers to give patients the best chance at beating cancer. 
To learn more, visit gettrapello.com. To subscribe to the podcast or download transcripts of any episode, visit precisionmedicinepodcast.com. We invite you to join the conversation on social media. You can find us on Twitter at PMP by Trapello and on LinkedIn at the Trapello company page. If you know someone who would enjoy the Precision Medicine Podcast, please share it. They'll thank you, and so will we. We hope you'll tune in for the next episode.